Lately, I've been rereading The Courage to Be by the 20th century theologian, philosopher, Paul Tillich. Its basic message is this. We dwell in what is best in us, what is essential about ourselves, and find joy in these things in spite of the accidental and difficult parts of every life. It occurs to me that it's this elemental courage to be that is always missing in news of faraway tragedy and conflict. We experience pictures of people frozen in the worst moments of their lives. We have no sense of what will help them get out of bed the next morning and still live and love and even take joy. This was on my mind as we produced this hour's show, a new installment in our series from Jerusalem at the West Bank. This time, we soak up the humanity of a close-knit neighborhood in the sacred city of Bethlehem. That is, normal life in a Palestinian refugee camp in a West Bank town. The things that give me hope and pleasure here, and I, and I have to say pleasure more than hope, uh, getting to enjoy sort of the change of the seasons here and enjoy the, the cauliflower and then the almonds and then the chickpeas. It's one of the resistance elements. Even though you feel uh, the pain inside you, you need to laugh and you need to smile and you need to play, you need to, uh, to move in your life. APM, American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today, on Being, Pleasure More Than Hope, Inside Ida Refugee Camp. Ida Camp is one of three refugee camps on the border between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Nearly 5,000 people live here, usually together with relatives in buildings that have gotten taller, added floors, as their families have added generations. More than half of Ida's residents today are young, under the age of 25. And most of them are Muslim, but there are Christian neighbors. The name of the camp itself came from a name of a Christian lady who lived here before 1948. So when the people came here, this lady has this coffee shop and the, she offered coffee to the refugees and hosted them for a while. So that's why people... And did they name the camp after her then? Yeah. Yes. So it, it was. It was very interesting. And also because Aida, the, the word in Arabic, is linked to Auda, which means return. Khulud Ajarma works in the Ida Camp Youth Center, the Laji Center. This is a center of community, and it's where we set up our microphones and cameras for half a day. We've come following the work of a Palestinian-American anthropologist, Amal Bashara. She's living and working here now with her infant daughter and her husband, Nidal, who grew up in Ida Camp. We'll hear from him in a little while. We begin with Amal, who I experience as a kind of bridge person between life in this part of Bethlehem and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. So we just as we start, I just want to hear a little bit of your story and your background. So your family... Was Palestinian? Were you what, first generation, second generation American, or how did? What's that back? What's that connection to here? My father came to the states in 1966 from here. Um, he's an Israeli citizen, uh, so he was born and raised in the Galilee. Okay. My mom's Swedish American. Oh, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me what your sense of um, what did Palestinian identity mean to you when you were when you were a child, and then as you as you grew up. You know, I think a lot of it was about politics when I was a kid. I think it was about politics and food and family, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds like it covers a lot. Um, but I think as I got older, certainly that sense of what uh, Palestinianness is about has gotten a lot deeper, mm-hmm. although it's still a lot about 
politics, food, and family, <laughs> kind of unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that your uh, that your sense of your identity and was part of your attraction to anthropology, or mm. did that play into it? Or well, one way I explain my interest in anthropology is my father is so political science oriented, and in fact, most people who look at this conflict are really political science oriented or history oriented. Mm-hmm. And I think coming here and just getting sort of the glimpses of Palestinian society that I got, you know, hanging out with my cousins playing Uno, which we could play because I spoke enough Arabic to know the colors and the numbers, you know. I realized there was a lot more going on that I felt didn't enter into those political discussions. And so anthropology was sort of my way of of investigating kind of everything else, you know. Right. So you're as an anthropologist you're actually coming at the story, right? This the Palestinian story, the Arab story from that direction. Uh-huh. Of who what's going on on a human level. A social level. Yeah. Like, you know, for example, being here in the camp um in this refugee camp, you know, some days it's really quiet. And, you know, those are the days that certainly the journalists are not here, right? Right. Um, but it's important to be here on those days. First of all, because it's important to understand that the politics of the situation are sometimes about it being deadly calm, really quiet, about the fact that, you know, many of the teenagers, 15 to 20 or so, are, are in prison, for example. Well, that makes for quiet, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it's also about being here because, uh, for example, at night there are still arrest rates, Journalists aren't necessarily here for that either because obviously they don't usually spend the night, you know. So it's about being here for the quiet times. It's about being here for the sort of the things that just sort of erupt and take shape. Okay. And so tell me, describe uh, where we are now. Right now we're in um, Lajit Center, which is a youth center organized or established in 2000. um, And it serves the youth of Ida Refugee Camp and some other places around here. Um, so it was established by people who used to be members and active members of political parties, you know, who, you know, were political prisoners, um, and then who in the 1990s became more and more disillusioned with the formal political processes and decided that if they wanted to do something to help their community, to build something for the new generation, they were going to have to start from, you know, sort of the level of the street. Um, so actually before they had this really nice center set up, um, you know, they did, they did activities in the street. Um, and then, um, like what? I think they started with things like, uh, well, they started right before the Second Intifada. So one of the things they wanted to do was have a scout troop that would go out and like walk in the mountains and stuff like this. That became impossible during the Second Intifada. That's kind of like civil society, right? Yeah, yeah, civil uh society. Exactly, Uh right? I mean, well, now, now, you know, we have a Dubka troop, which is a dance troop. We have a library, a computer lab. We have a media center that does all kinds of media making. Like Uh we have fantastic photography program. We have um, documentary, you know, short documentary production, digital storytelling. Um, so there's just sort of like a lot of stuff going on here and Mm -hmm. a lot of kids passing through. And I think some of it is about all those like concrete things that we make, like cool little documentary films. But a lot of it's just about having this space for kids to come together and, um, also meet people 10 years older than them who can sort of talk to them about their lives in a way that their parents and teachers maybe don't. Mm. I know in some of your work, um, you talk about the language, um, well, well, even the, the language of a refugee camp, and this uh-huh. is also an experience I'm having here. Uh-huh. These are also communities, right? And as you say, there's a diversity to, to what a refugee camp looks like, feels like, what happens there. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm experiencing, um, it just feels like a neighborhood, yes. right? So I think if Americans have images probably from some kind of natural disaster of a refugee camp, it's makeshift, whereas these are, these are, as you say, distinct communities and very different communities. I mean, describe how you would t- 
talk about, you know, what is a refugee camp, the range of that. Well, yeah. So one thing that's very different about this refugee camp compared to many that you hear about in the news is that it's been around for decades, right? Hmm. Um, you know, since around 1951. Um, so, you know, it started off with people living in tents. They lived in tents for between five and 10 years. And then they built these concrete houses, which were one room blocks. And then since then, you know, people have built houses and, um, and then they've built on top and top and top and top and top, letting each family sort of grow because that, they don't have any room to expand. Grow vertically. Vertically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it used to be that every family had this little concrete block house and around it was some land and they, they used to do a little bit of farming. So people had a few, you know, a lemon tree, an olive tree, a little place for vegetables like um, tomatoes and so forth. But as they had to build out, all that land was taken up. Now there's there's almost no sort of even tiny bit of open space in the camp. So that's, you know, one characteristic of the camp. The other thing is that uh, each of the camps, even in the West Bank, have different characteristics. Um, you know, if you go to Balata refugee camp in Nablus, the, uh, it's so tight that you can easily push your hands out and touch two houses. I mean, that's how small the alleyways are. There's mm-hmm. no, you know, there's maybe one way through the whole camp, which is much bigger than this camp that a car can get through. Okay. So this, you know, is a kind of a comfortable, one of the more comfortable refugee camps, mm-hmm. but it's still, you know, overcrowded, um, you know, has some like lack in terms of municipal services. You know, many of, most of these people were, you know, farmers. Right. And obviously now they're not. Mm-hmm. So here's a, a perhaps a s- stupid question. But um, so as you also note in your writing, um, people are not any less free to move around who live in the refugee camp than other citizens of Bethlehem. Right. It's not like they're locked inside the refugee camp. Could people move? Could people move out, decide to leave? They could. Okay. Uh, yeah, people do, certainly, you know, if they can, you know, save money to buy land or, you know, rent. Or so buy they could a take outside. a job somewhere and. Right, and have enough money then to rent an apartment somewhere yeah. else. And then they would still, of course, be refugees, and they would still have the right to return. They still have refugee status. Yeah, okay. they still have refugee status. But is part of what holds these communities together um, a collective will to move as a community back? Is that is that yes, the idea? But, I mean, why are people still in the camp? Most The real reason people are in the camp is because they actually can't necessarily easily go out and buy um, land and build. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. So in a way, the politics, certainly there is sort of a political community here in the camp, you know, a cluster of people who care about the same kinds of things and so on and so forth. But um, that's not to say that once you move, you lose that. Right. I mean, I think there yeah. is anxiety about that. Nidal's, my husband's um, sister is buying or is building a house and it's going to be really beautiful and it's on a piece of land and, you know, it's really lovely. And um, they, they're almost ready. Like, in fact, they've bought the furniture about a year ago. Are they living here now? Yeah, they live in the camp. Okay. And um, they bought the furniture like a year ago. It's been sitting in like the warehouse or something because they're not ready to move to the new house. Now, the the sort of stated reason is they're waiting for this road to get paved so that it'll be (laughs) easy for them to come and go to their new house. But the truth is, you know, they could have moved up there, you know. Mm -hmm. I think they're reluctant in some way Mm -hmm. to leave the camp. I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, pleasure more than hope, tracing the contours of everyday humanity in the Ida refugee camp in Bethlehem. Amal Bashara is a professor at Tufts University. She's Palestinian-American herself and currently living here with her baby and her husband, who grew up in Ida camp. And she's done some really interesting research into how foreign journalism about 
Palestinians informs their sense of themselves. You can dig into that on our website, onbeing.org. So here's the way you said this. Um, so d- journalists, you know, it's not just that journalists come in and they're working with people on the ground. They're getting quotes from mm-hmm. Palestinians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, then, although these Palestinians' words are transported all over the world, they tend not to come home to roost. Mm. If I asked you, you know, what are the Palestinian stories you wish were being told, you long to be covered, to be truly covered, you know, what, what comes to mind? Well, some things like, I, I think, you know, refugee stories, um, you know, stories about... Uh, about loss and about uh, distance. I mean, for example, many of the refugees living in this refugee camp, they could walk to their villages in about an hour if there wasn't a wall in the way, you know, Mm -hmm. and if it was legal. You know, I mean, that's a really intimate relationship with a place that's completely taken out of their lives in in a physical sense. You know, I mean, they're really close and they know it, and yet they can't, you know, they can't get there, right? So Mm -hmm. those are some of the stories. I think stories of, of villages, you don't get, you know, that much, um, you know, a story about agriculture, about growing things in this land and you what mean that of, means to people. Of thriving villages or yeah. just functioning villages. Functioning, you know, yeah. right. Getting yeah. by, you yeah. know, uh, getting by on, you know, raising, um, the, the, just now it's the season of, um, of what they call Zahar Beladi. It's like the, a kind of cauliflower that's, um, local. It's a little bit yellow if you see it in the markets. Um, it takes nine months oh, to I've grow. Oh, I've seen that. It grows that yellow? It grows yellow. Oh, I thought it was pickled or something. And it know. takes nine months to grow. You put a seed in the ground in May and you harvest it in February. And it doesn't require any irrigation water. And that's why it's oh. that's why it's grown here. That's one of the reasons it's grown here, you know? Um, so, I mean, you think about I mean, I just had a baby, right? So, you know, a, a cauliflower <laughs> that takes nine months to grow, you yeah. know, yeah. is really lovely. Uh-huh. Uh, and they taste better and people really enjoy that, you know? Um, so, yeah, some, thinking about some of those stories. Now, I'm not saying that American audiences have to hear these stories. Obviously, nobody needs to hear no, about this just, nice they're cauliflower. Stories of, they're, they're stories of life. Yes. Whereas we often, the stories we hear are of destruction and death, honestly. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I want to come back to even a term like refugee. Uh-huh. Um, there's a reality to that that, uh, that deserves expression, right? But I think that... Um, the, the the language of refugee, uh, especially in an American ear where that mm-hmm. experience is so foreign these days, it is the language of victimhood. Mm-hmm. And I don't experience the whole Palestinian ex- reality, the human reality, to be one that's just victimhood, right? I'm happy to hear you say that. Because a few years ago, I think for a journalist coming here, one might have been bombarded by stories of victimhood. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I'm really happy to hear you come here and you know hear that you've come here and say that you know actually there's a lot more going on. I think that's great. Um, I, mean, I mean, what I'm not saying is that there's not a tragedy that's real, right? Right. And there's not suffering that's real, but that's different from saying we are we are only victims. Right? Well, I mean, I think people would say you know refugee is not just a language of victimhood; it's also a language of rights. Mm-hmm. I think people would be very clear about mm-hmm. that, okay. you know? Yeah. It's about a right to return. It's about a right to, you know, um, go back to the villages where our grandfathers were born. I think many people would say that. Okay. Um, yeah. But I still don't think it, it, 
as the only defining word on a human being, they are a refugee. It's not enough. No. I mean, even if it, even if, as you say, the word itself holds, you know, ne- it's necessary, but it's one descriptor. You know oh, what I'm getting at? Absolutely. I mean, it's a political identity. You know, I mean, Americans don't walk around necessarily thinking, I'm a citizen, right? Right. <laughs> but that's sort of what, I mean, and I would say, right. like, I mean, so you know, like you're that. a citizen and you're a parent and you're somebody's child and you do this for a living and you write and you have these thoughts, right? Oh, yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. And that's very true here as uh-huh. well. I mean, honestly, I also feel like the language of settlements. Mm-hmm. Is obscures the reality of, you know, when you see these settlements, I think both a refugee camp and a settlement, I'm talking about the Israeli mm-hmm. settlements, you know, Americans might imagine tent cities in both cases. Huh, interesting. And not, you know, the, the settlements are these gleaming, they mm-hmm. look like suburban condominium developments, oh, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm very intrigued by how I think the language, you know, even some of the really basic vocabulary obscures the story. Yeah. It's like we need to just keep on unpeeling the layers of what these yeah. words mean and what they mean to different people. So, for example, in Bethlehem, right. if you ask somebody, if you just run into somebody on the street and you know ask them what their impression of it of a refugee camp is, it's going to be very similar to if you, depending on who you stop on the street, mm-hmm. if you ask you know sort of a, a person who's not a camp resident doesn't have friends and family there, they're going to think of it maybe in some of the similar terms that if you stop somebody in Manhattan and ask them about uh, what the South Bronx is like, you know. Right. So these, mm-hmm. these places have a lot of different connotations. Mm-hmm. So I think I just want to finish with um, asking you about... Now, are you living here now? Uh-huh. And for her, are you permanently, indefinitely? or No, no. Okay. Six or seven months. How long have you been here living uh, here? Six weeks. And something like that. Okay, so you're... Your your daughter wasn't born here. No, no. Okay, but you have you are living here and and you're living here as a mother, which uh-huh. is your your relative. That's a relatively new experience yes. for you. Uh, tell me how you think about that and what this experience of living here and living here as a mother has maybe added in terms of a layer of your comprehension to this. And also, you know, and I think this question is related. You know, what what makes you despair, uh-huh. and and what are your sources of hope, um, being here? in the midst of this well, place. I have to say that I feel that in every way it's a privilege. I am in a privileged position being here. I am privileged to have a kind of a job that allows me to travel and do in-depth research for months and months. I mean, I'm a university professor on sabbatical. Um, and to do that as a new mother is is actually a special privilege. I mean, I have my daughter here, and sometimes she can come on the research trips and see the new spring baby animals and how fun that is when I go out to check out the cauliflower and I get to take her along Um I, as an American, am incredibly privileged to be able to move throughout this country as pretty much no one else can. Right. Um, That's huge, Palestine, isn't it? Yeah. Palestinians from the West Bank can't go inside, and Gaza obviously can't. Mm-hmm. Um, Palestinians from inside Israel don't really mm-hmm. come here much. And Israelis can't move freely in the same way either. That's right. Yeah. They don't They don't move. Yeah. But the interesting thing about it for me is it's not at all a comfortable privilege. <laughs> Uh, psychologically, emotionally, even physically, um, you know, very few people move the way I do. And so there's no infrastructure, for example, to move the way I do, you know, taking hmm. these buses and walking and crossing the checkpoint and hiring cabs and patching a way to go from one place to the other in these routes that very few people are traveling, you know, yeah. uh, coming home to tell people about it. It's exhausting and it's uncomfortable, but I'm really, really happy to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. 
I was a little anxious taking my daughter here. Uh, one of the things that made me most anxious was to be in, I just imagined, what is it going to be like for me to be in Jerusalem with all of those armed settler types and my infant daughter? You know, I mean, I'm coming from Massachusetts and, mm -hmm. you know, the wonderful cities of Somerville and Cambridge and Massachusetts. It's very you know, feels very safe and comfortable there. And to come to this place where I have to see my daughter next to a, an automatic weapon, mm -hmm. you know, it, I took the drain with my daughter and it was very strange because um, that's my main, aside from my experience with family, public transportation is one of my main experiences of Israeli society. So there I am in a long train ride, right? You know, and I'm doing this all by myself because my husband can't go inside Israel. So um, handling this, you know, very squirmy, active, sweet, you know, six, seven month old, and everybody wants to make eyes and Google and play. And I'm hesitant about whether I want her making eyes at the soldiers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Then on the last leg of the journey, um, I was across the way from two women who I think were Arab, Jewish, gay, poor women. That was my, <laughs> that was how I blocked them out from their yeah. appearance. And also they spoke, they seemed to speak no English and they were speaking all Hebrew. Okay. And these women were like, give us your baby, give us your baby. I was like, no, I'm not going to give you my baby. It's really nothing personal. I just sort of tried to say nothing because we had no language. So I was like, you know, uh -huh. but anyway, she got so squirmy and so on and so forth. And I was, and they just kept on making eyes and smiling. And she, my, my daughter was smiling back and I was like, okay, take the baby. <laughs> <laughs> so she had a really nice, um, I think time with these women. Uh, -huh. uh, so that was a good connection. So, you know, I keep hearing from people, I think again, from the outside, it feels like a situation of total despair and the peace process is locked and it, I don't experience people here to be without hope, though. And I almost see people pointing at these weird, these human encounters like that as somehow seeds of what might and must one day come about. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, the things that give me hope and pleasure here, and I, and I have to say pleasure more than hope, mm -hmm. unfortunately, are kind of the things that happen with the people that I care about and the people that I've known for a long time and, or meeting a new person who's able to sort of tell me something in a really dynamic, interesting way, um, uh, getting to enjoy sort of the change of the seasons here mm. is something that I, I mean, I'm often here in the summer and again, I just feel like it's a tremendous privilege to be here in the winter and the spring mm. and enjoy the, the cauliflower and then the almonds and then the chickpeas and then the you know there are these things called faus which is a kind of a cucumber it's kind of between a cucumber and a squash i mean i love all these seasons this is what i take great pleasure in At onbeing.org, listen to my unedited conversation with Amal Bashar at the Ida camp, including some discussion on her research into the web of relationships between Palestinians and the journalists who cover them. We also discussed how Al Jazeera has transformed journalism in this part of the world and created a sense of longing among Palestinians to develop their own strong local journalistic voice. That flows into what's happening day-to-day -day at the Laji Center at Ida Camp. Khaluda Jarma is 24 years old and has grown up here, but she spent some time studying abroad in Coventry. That's where she got her English accent. 
And what is your role at the center? I don't think, did you say that before? Um, um, as well, um, we have the newly established media unit. So yes. Mohammed is responsible for the photography part. I'm responsible for the film part. Okay. But as well as I do training for uh, this new project that we, uh, is called Our Voice, which is uh, we work with six different refugee camps all around the West Bank. Our previous work was based here, mainly in Bethlehem. But now we work with... Um, Refugee camps in Nablus, um, Jenin up north, Ramallah in the middle, and Bethlehem in the middle, uh, Jericho and Hebron in the south. Mm -hmm. So we teach a group of children. We have 210 children that we teach different syllabus, including human rights, not children, I, I mean youth, but teach them human rights, democracy, gender issues along as uh, photography and journalism. Yeah. And the outcome of the project that these kids get to write a magazine in the same name of the project, Our Voice. Mm. And in this magazine, they cover many issues about their lives. So we're trying in a way with the media unit and with Our Voice to create alternative media because people abroad don't really see the day-to-day -day life. Nobody comes, like no journalists come into the refugee camp and say, I want to sit with the family and see what they cook, for example. Right. So that's what we're trying to do, get to people's families, get the, the human aspect of refugee lives outside. Mm -hmm. We're posting links to a few past issues of Our Voice magazine on our website, onbeing.org, including one centered around letters young Palestinians here have crafted to people who've held power, past and present, from Ben-Gurion to Barack Obama to Ban Ki-moon. And you'll find photos by a 20-something resident of Ida Camp and participant in the youth center whom we met, Mohammed Alaza. He's also part of a YouTube video made by youth of Ida Camp at onbeing.org right now. It's a glimpse inside what Amal Bashara called the quiet times in the camp when journalists aren't watching. Coming up, we speak with Amal Bashara's husband, Nidal. He comes from the Ida camp and has long worked with teenagers here and in other refugee camps across the West Bank. He shares his sense of how the up-and-coming generation of Palestinians thinks about a future with Israelis. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. On Being is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karin Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Today on Being, pleasure more than hope. This is the latest in our series of shows from our spring trip to Jerusalem and the West Bank. This time we're in Bethlehem, which today is a West Bank city. It's home to three refugee camps alongside its iconic sacred sites like the Church of the Nativity. We're in the Ida refugee camp, a neighborhood of around 5,000 people, extended families and others, including some non-refugees. The Muslim call to prayer sounded beyond the windows. You may hear it in the background as Nidal al-Azraq sat down to speak with me in the Laji Youth Center. 
the atmosphere in this space is creative and calming at once. But that's not to say that cycles of conflict, peace process, and intifada or uprising are not milestones of a childhood spent here, like that of Nidal al-Azraq. Tell me your story. Well, I was born and raised here in Ida camp, and I lived almost all my life in this uh, refugee camp uh, where I... uh, witnessed a lot and I learned a lot uh, socially and politically um, and uh, I got involved in activism early in life uh, started in the 80s late 80s and early 90s and as many people who worked in, uh, in, in politics uh, we uh, stopped working in politics when Oslo came. Right, those were the Oslo years, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. when Oslo came and uh, at that time I was studying electricity, and I finished uh, the electricity, and I started working in Israel and Jerusalem. And uh, then, in the beginning of the Intifada, I was working actually in this settlement, Abu Ghraib settlements, and I was, you know, seeing the helicopters shooting Bethlehem. And then I decided to not work in Israel in settlements since that. And uh, so I came here, I started working in the uh, streets uh, with the teenagers and the children, uh, trying to uh, first to understand them, to see uh, um, the similarities and the, uh, the differences between my generation and their generation and mm. the challenges that they face. Uh, and uh, I uh, got involved uh, with LAGI in 2002. I was, at that time, I was injured. Badly from the helicopter, so I couldn't mm. work uh, other type of uh, jobs. Were you jobs. here when you were injured? Yeah, I was here in the camp. It was 2002 on March. It was the invasion of the Church of the Nativity. Oh, right. Back then. Where there was the siege. There was a siege, a long siege yes. uh, on Bethlehem. And uh, I was with my friends. And they started here, actually, in Ida camp, where they brought two helicopters and maybe six, seven hundred soldiers with many tanks for this small place. And uh, I was injured with other uh, 40 people. Mm. Five of them, six of them were killed. Uh, and since then, I couldn't work in constructions and electricity. And a uh, Laji came to me and they offered me a job. In a and this is this lab. media project? This is back then we, we were like really, we were in a different location here. Okay. We had this uh, computer lab and they asked me to come and operate this computer lab. So uh, I was in a very close contact with kids and teenagers where I really got attached uh, to them. And since then I devoted my, uh, my whole time, my whole life working with, uh, with the children and teenagers uh, in Ida camp, and now I expand my work through a Sautuna project that Laji has been doing since the last two and a half years. I work in uh, Nablus, in Balata camp, and mm. in Janine camp, in Janine, uh, with uh, groups of children and teenagers on different topics uh, mm-hmm. related to human rights, uh, democracy, um, topics like to understand the conflicts uh, and how we can, uh, you know, uh, not live with it, but uh, um, go around it that we can survive. Mm. Basically, you know, my job is to educate these children and teenagers to uh, prepare them the f- to the future. Mm. You know, the idea is to that they can reach to the level where they can uh, make decisions by themselves. Uh, you know, when you're in a conflict, there are a lot of 
movements, a lot of uh, groups that try to uh, uh, bring people around them. And right. with this process, a lot of uh, manipulatings and a lot of uh, playing in minds. So one of the main ideas that led to start to uh, help these teenagers to reach to the age where they can make their own decisions. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is the tough and hard job. Uh, it's it's an interesting project also because I think teenagers in any culture, that's, that's also a time when they're perhaps most vulnerable. And also, yeah. as you say, being able to make wise decisions for themselves is a challenge. It's a big challenge. Almost biologically as well. Yeah, it's a big challenge here. I mean, I worked with teenagers in the U.S. Yeah. And high schools. Here, uh, you work with them in institutions, but their families, you know, have so much uh, uh, troubles uh, because of the, you know, uh, poverty, the unemployment, and uh, each family has, you know, 8, 10, 11, 15 kids, and mm. the parents are so busy trying to provide, like, food and education for right. them, and the, the street is a quite uh, tough place uh, for them as well. Mm-hmm. So you'll face a lot of challenge uh, with these teenagers and children to uh, just, you know, let's think about our situation. Let's uh, think and discuss how we can, you know, understand it, and uh, let's see, find a way how we can, you know, work on it. You know, one of my main goals working with this teenager is... After this two and three years of working with them, how they can carry the knowledge and the things that they learn and go and change, make some changes in society, mm-hmm. you know, uh, based on their beliefs, of course, and based on uh, things that they believe in. Because now I work with, with the groups that they have been involved in, uh, in Sautana for the past two years. And I have a few meetings with them, and I found that they really, really take a step forward mm. and go to the society and try to uh, challenge society. Mm-hmm. But we found that the society is bigger than us and stronger than us. So we started practicing here. Okay, For example, right. the idea of democracy, the idea of the uh, uh, individual in the group, and it's perfect time because of what's going on in the Middle East. Yes. And are so, they inspired by that, these teenagers? A lot. I was shocked, uh, you know. Uh, for example, uh, we started with this caricature cartoon by a uh, Palestinian uh, artist. His name is Najil Ali. Uh, he has this uh, cartoon where uh, he had uh, Anna, which means me, individual, mm-hmm. and Nahnu, we, the group. And he tried to challenge the two ideas. And uh, I took this idea and I start, uh, as we started like drawing this idea and discuss it. And we made uh, big posters and uh, we went to the uh, administrator office here at Laji to test the democracy that we have here. So if you have your place to express your opinion, if when you express your opinion, uh, what kind of challenges you'll receive and are you ready to fight for them and things like that. That has been really excited. And these inspirations, they have them before, but with what's going on in the Middle East. It's emboldening. Yeah, it's really, they have so much uh, courage. They have yeah. so many fantastic ideas, the way they can like sit and plan. So it has been really fun to do this with the teenagers here. And I do the same uh, uh, job with the people at uh, Janine and Nablus. And uh, it's a new thing. Mm-hmm. Usually we, we used to challenge the occupation here, you know, with different kinds of resistance, you know, demonstrations, uh, stones, and all these types of resistance. But now now it's time to challenge the society and to... to uh, right, it seems like the challenge is going both externally and internally. That's true. Uh-huh. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you.
Krista Tippett, On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, pleasure more than hope, inside Ida Refugee Camp in Bethlehem. The Arab Spring is not the only fluid force in the backdrop of life here right now, of course. Prospects for near-term progress in Israeli-Palestinian relations are as fraught as ever and as unpredictable. And as Nidal al-Azraq helps me understand, the emerging generation here has its very own sense of basic principles, like the right of Palestinians to return to the ancestral villages of their families. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, compared to your generation, in terms of how you saw the future unfolding, and these kids now, or these young people, um, you know, do they have a different vision of what's possible? Uh, That's a very good question, actually. Um, they have different type of visions. You know, uh, this right to retain issues that is really big and complicated and has been going on since 1948 right. is an issue for them. So I propose, we proposed this question for them. So you'll be able to live with Israelis of the same land. Actually, this is our next magazine at Laji with the six different refugee camps in the West Bank thinking of the future and the possibilities of, of uh, the Israel-Palestinian conflicts. So many of them, yeah, I mean, i really ready to go back to my village. I heard a lot about it from my grandparents, from my parents. Some of them, well, I was born here and... Uh, I don't know if I can return some of them. Well, I would like to go and live near the beach. You know, right. yeah, I'll come. You know, I like <laughs> yeah. water. You know, these type of things. It's hard for them to explain for them, like the one state, two state solutions, uh, demographically and geographically. Uh, but uh, they they know that they want one state solution. Hmm. Uh, another issue is to be honest with you, many of the teenagers and the kids who have lost uh, their parents in this conflict and their parents, you know, they were like killed uh, in front of them by snipers through the invasions and to discuss the idea of like, what do you think of the future of Palestinians and Israelis living together and uh, all of these things. They have, they have different issues. They, have, they still have this anger and uh, hurts feelings inside them, but uh, they have the ability to, to move on with it. You know, but they're really struggling, as, mm-hmm. as many people here in, in, in mm-hmm. the West Bank uh, struggling. And, uh, you know, sometimes I discuss the, the, the issue of forgiveness. You know, sometimes, you know, we enter like some philosophical uh, topics uh, to these uh, children. And they're good at it. What do you think of forgiveness? You know, and, uh, you'll receive some kind of uh, answers. Well, I can't forgive now. Because there's no ground for forgiveness. I have occupations, I have walls, soldiers come every night to the camp, mm-hmm. checks, arrests, you know. Uh, so some kids, well, I need justice before I forgive, I need my rights before I forgive. So their, their view, their vision of the future is really quite complicated. They all agree that, yeah, we would love to live in one state mm-hmm. uh, without walls, without checkpoints. I can go to the beach and they, I can, you know go to my village, uh, they have it. They, they have the ground for it. But because, you know, the location of Ida camps is very close to, as you see, the settlements, very close to the military camps here. Uh, most of the conflicts and the clashes used to start here and end here. So they really uh, got damaged psychologically yeah. from the side. There's, yeah, there's so much pain and damage yeah. all around that complicates all the other issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That human... Pain mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. becomes a factor in 
You know, I, I think people in the States, as you realize, some, they often think of this as a religious conflict. Oh, yes. Right. And, oh, but I yes. mean, the, the layers yes. of this, there's so many layers, and that's just one of them. But I, I mean, do the, is religion part of these young people's, how, how does it, does religion play in, or does it at all, into their reactions? or Reaction to the conflict? Yeah, or, or when they talk about forgiveness, or just how they cope in their day-to-day lives. You know, based on my experience in the past uh, nine or ten years working with children and teenagers, uh, uh, I can say it uh, comfortably, religion is not uh, the issue. Yeah. For them, when it comes to the conflicts, uh, for example, uh, all their parents grow up working in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel. There was a time when, uh, during Oslo and before Oslo, when all the Israelis used to come and shop here and, and, and the checkpoint was open and many people used to go there inside Jerusalem and, and, and see the places. So when you, when you propose this uh, for them, uh, when you say, okay, Jewish and Palestinians, they say Israelis, and Palestinians, they don't say Jewish and Muslims. The conflicts right. between Israelis and Palestinians, right. uh, the conflicts between religious settlers yeah. and villagers, yeah. they don't use the terms of like uh, um, uh, religious uh, uh, Muslims are fighting Jews. Right, it's examples. not a conflict between Islam and Judaism. Or... Yeah, I mean, without watching the TV, the conflicts is around them. They living it uh, life, and uh, they face during their daily life uh, some Islamic movements and some mm-hmm. left movements, and they have different views. Of course, when you talk to uh, to a kid or to a, a teenager from a religious family here, he will be using these religious terms in terms of uh, struggle and in terms of uh, we should uh, fight and we should uh, uh, things like that. But even though when they use these terms, they will use them as a relation of uh, this is a conflict between Israelis and, and Palestinians mm. and we should uh, fight to gain uh, 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 our rights. They don't use the term, for example, jihad right. in their discussions, uh, even those religious uh, kids mm-hmm. were not, uh, you know, in the 18th or 17th century, we were, you know, mm-hmm. nobody is going to throw anybody in the sea, nobody is going to, these are, uh, you know, some propaganda terms. So sometimes they heard them and they got excited about them, but they realized that it's not, it's not the case. So, yeah, I mean, uh, my experience with them, it's really uh, uh, fully politically, not religiously. These layers of of psychological trauma, of Mm -hmm. people in prison, people killed... uh, being separated from loved ones for mm-hmm. all kinds of different reasons. Um, how, how do people live with that? Is it possible to uh, to kind of carve out a sense of dignity, to, to transcend it? Um, what, what makes that possible? You know, one of the things that we learned when we were children, I'm talking about my experience now as a child, we, we, we learn this lesson not by our parents or our families. We learn this lesson by the life that uh, it's the three things. is how to survive and how to live with pain and how to rely on yourself as children. Hmm. How to survive because it's a conflict. A bullet may come to you anytime. How to, you need to learn early in age how to avoid it. 
how to live with your pain because you you may like get arrested or beating or humiliated in checkpoint not live with it and you know cope with it and accept it but how to go around it and continue with your life because it's happening on everyday basis you will get really damaged if you you cannot as a child as a teenager as a parent if you don't know how to deal with these things it could really damage you and and destroy you yeah we have a lot of damage psychological damage mm-hmm. inside us and a lot of sadness inside us but we have the hope and we have uh, the mechanism we learned early in life how to cope with it of course with uh, lots of suffering and how to uh, um uh, survive also we learned this lesson when we were children because you know your parents may get killed or arrested and your brothers right, and sisters right, right. and you need to uh, find your way in the society i mean remembering my childhood like my family in the 80s were uh, politically were very active like Our house got uh, demolished once and got closed once, and my sisters went to prisons. My old brothers went to prison. I'm, I mean, I'm the youngest of eleven, and my father was busy, you know, providing like lawyers and providing like uh, food to the family. So I grow up, um, even though I'm the youngest, I should be spoiled in a sense. But I grow up basically in the streets, and other families raised me. Other people raised me in the streets, and I've learned a lot. Yes, it did affected me, and I still carry this psychological uh, issues in my mind and my memories. But on the other hand, it gave me the the strength to survive. One time, we I gave a talk at uh, Boston, and 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 uh, an American uh, from the audience asked me. I went to Palestine, and even though there's like a lot of sadness and anger and occupation but people are smiling and joking all the time and trying this this i said i told them well uh it's one of the resistance elements <laughs> not just to resist the occupation to resist your 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 pain your fear uh, mm. because it's always around you you can't you can't let this fear and let these things to destroy you so you even though you feel uh you have the pain inside you but you need to laugh and you need to smile and you need to to play you need to uh, to move in your life for example early in in uh, in life we learn to not show our feel to the occupiers and there's a very very strong uh, uh, video actually it's Khulud's uh, uh, relative she's a teacher and they bombed the door and she was behind the door and she was killed so her daughter was like six years old was crying and begging the soldier to call the ambulance. So her brother, which he's 11 years old, he came and asked her to not cry in front of the soldier. Mm-hmm. And I was, for me, I know why he did this. Mm-hmm. I understand, but I was shocked to see this boy asking his six-year-old sister to not cry in front of the soldiers because we, we learned early, like, okay, um, don't show your, 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 your tears to the occupier. This is one of the uh, resistant elements and, and all these things. Yes, it damaged us, but uh, I have to say it gave us something positive. Uh, things. It's hard. It's weird to, to, to listen to it, to believe it even, but uh, it has a lot of negative sides, but uh, based on my experience who witnessed and lived the first intifada mm-hmm. and lived the second intifada and I participated in many of these activism yes I can say um, uh, it's hard uh, psychologically and on every level but um, I have some strength by it it's it, it also makes me think that if Palestinians and Israelis live together one day 
part of that would be having to learn to show your pain to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's another uh, excellent uh, point, uh, which w- wouldn't be easy. No, it wouldn't be easy. No. It would uh, take generations. Wouldn't yes, it? yes. It would take it would take people living, living towards that. Yeah, yeah. But you need to find the ground for it, uh, right. and uh, slowly people will do it. But it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And even uh, as as uh, Middle Eastern culture. Arab culture, mm-hmm. especially for boys and men, mm-hmm. you need to be tough. You need to be uh, not show your your your, your tears. To, even though we struggle so hard when we bring psychologists and social workers to work with the teenagers to talk about their feelings, yeah. this is one of the like you know major like struggles here in Palestine. Just talk about your feelings. You feel better. You know, we'll find a way to help you in this. It take us months and months and years, you know, for them to, to, to reach to the level, yes, oh, yeah, I believe that this is good for me. Yeah, I feel mm. comfortable. I feel good about it. And, I, you know, I can talk about my feelings, about how I feel, what type of things that I face in my life. So it's not easy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. At onbeing.org, we're excerpting and posting a documentary made by Nidal al-Azraq and his wife Amal Bashara. You heard my conversation with her earlier in this hour. The documentary, Degrees of Incarceration, chronicles Ida Camp community members, old and young. You can also find video of my unedited conversations with both Nidal and Amal. Again, that's onbeing.org. And in a realm where borders have no meaning, our Facebook community continues to grow with more than 20,000 strong voices. This is where some of our richest conversations are taking root. Find us at facebook.com slash onbeing. Or check us out on Twitter, where we gained a large number of new followers in response to my recent interview with neuroscientist Richard Davidson. Our Twitter handle, at beingtweets. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Special thanks this week to Fouad Abu-Ghosh and Diane Winston. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is executive producer. And I'm Krista Tippett. On Being is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, we explore land, life, and the poetry of creatures, a new reading of the Bible's sense of the relationship between human beings and the natural world. I speak with one of my favorite biblical scholars, Ellen Davis, and Wendell Berry reads us some of his poems. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.